Good morning. I found myself sitting there just enjoying the music. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Welcome. Glad to see everyone here this morning and uh, all those that are on Zoom as well. A couple of announcements. I want to make sure that you're aware of the fact that we have our packets ready for next week. Next week is our congregational meeting. Um, it'll be right after the service, and there are packets available back on the back table. Um, please just take one per household and um, take a look at it. That way you'll know a little bit about what's going what's to be talked about next week. Also, I want to make you aware or remind you, you see in the bulletin that there's a fundraiser going on today at Hosses. Uh, that's an LCCM fundraiser, and you see the details there. So if you weren't sure where to go for lunch, head to Hosses and help out L- LCCM. Are there any other, any other, I mean, there's lots of stuff going on. Please pay attention to your bulletin. Please pay attention to the slides up there if you have any questions. But we've got, we've got caroling coming up. Um, we've got a Christmas Eve service coming up. Get the word out about that. Uh, there's just so much going on. But is there anything that, that maybe we don't have in the bulletin or didn't have slides for or you want to emphasize for any reason? Well, I, I also feel like Boy, I wish I could squeeze all of you like into the middle. <laughs> it feels so open. <laughs> but I'll just, uh, we'll work with what we got, right? This is, uh, we're here to worship. And, uh, and glad to see a couple that are here from, that have been healing and uh, see visitors as well. So let's, let's pray. Let's, uh, let's get ready to worship our Lord. Good morning, Heavenly Father. Thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for these beautiful people that you have brought here this morning. We're here because we want to worship you. We're here because of you, not, not because of anything that um, benefits us in any way as far as just attendance or making sure that we see someone else or, or taking a look to see who's not here and so forth. We're here, Father. We're here for you. It's, it's about you and about us. And so, Father, I pray that whatever we do here this morning, all of it will be to your honor and to your glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to start with the Advent um, lighting. So I'll invite Bill and Gloria to come up. They're going to help me with lighting the Advent wreath. We'll see how many people get worried that I'm handing you this. <laughs> He's practiced. It's all good. <laughs> okay. No. The first one will be this one, and then it'll be this one, okay? All right. So last Sunday, we lit the first candle in our Advent wreath. It was the candle of hope. And so, Bill, let's light it again. Go ahead and light the first one. <laughs> and as he lights it, there we go. There we go. All right. And so as he lights it, let us remember that the light of hope shines in the darkness. Peace is one of God's gifts to us. John the Baptist was a prophet calling the people of Israel to repent, to find peace with God. John also declared that it is in our actions of love and justice that God's peace is shown. May we, by our actions, help to prepare the way for the coming of peace. We light this second candle 
to remind us that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. His light helps us find ways to share God's peace with others. Let's pray. And I know a lot of you were praying just a few seconds ago. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, let us give pardon. Where there is doubt, let us share faith. Where there is despair, let us provide hope. And where there is sadness, let us bring joy. Where there is darkness, let us shine light. Grant that we may not seek so much to be consoled as to console, not so much to be understood as to understand, not so much to be loved as to love others. For it is in giving that we receive, in pardoning that we are pardoned, and in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Thank you very much for your help. And our call to worship is from Psalm 50, if I remember correctly, this morning. 51. And I'm reading a few of the verses there where we read, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do, not, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. I'll invite you to stand and sing along as the praise band leads us this morning. Good morning, everybody. We're a little shorthanded today, but work with what you got, right? Please sing with us. What hope we hold this starlit night, a king is born in journey long we seek the light that leads to the hallowed major ground what fear we felt in the silent days for hundred years can he be found but broken by a baby's cry rejoice in the
So since we're short a drummer this week, if you guys could just clap extra loud <laughs> during this part.
you. Take, take a moment to greet your neighbor. <laughs> I know you had to adapt, adapt a little bit. Well done. you to find your way back to your seats. I love the fellowship. We'll take a moment now to, to lift up any prayers, any praises, prayer requests that we have. I will um, start off by mentioning one that I, I got notice from Ray Berger yesterday that Georgine is in the hospital. She's had some problems with severe stomach issues and then got dehydrated and now there's some problems with her kidney. Is that, I have that right, right, kidney. Um, so she's in the hospital right now. I hope to either visit or call her after the service. Um, but in case you didn't know that, keep her, keep her in prayer. Um, obviously, we want to keep, we want to pray for Rich. Um, he had some kind of a foot, some kind of a pain in his foot that started at the bottom, went to the top, and now he had to miss work and so forth. So the drummer, the one that, that's why they kind of had to adapt this morning. They did a great job of, of adapting, um, of not having him up there with them this morning. So, Any others that you'd like to bring, bring up? We'll do Bill first. I don't know if I can use this. Uh, thank you for all for your prayers, cards, gifts. Um, God is always good. Hey. It's been a very tough month, but each week that goes by it gets better. Uh, dangerously, I do drive now, so I'm getting used to the speeds on Route 81 because I live half the week with my daughter in Tamaqua because that's where my therapy is. And I just started coming home weekends uh, this weekend. Yesterday, it was good to get outside and drive my truck and uh, come see some a group of people to help put the manger scene up. All I did was supervise a little bit and Let's just say it was a very entertaining day, <laughs> especially when you see a big sledgehammer in certain people's hands. Again, God is great. All the time. Thank you. And we're glad to see you here. Um, yeah, we need prayer for Ron Kiskan. He had surgery done on Wednesday. Okay. Yep. Thank you. Okay, wait a minute. Prayers for the uh, accident that was up by our house last night. I don't know if anyone heard. I don't think there was any fatalities, and luckily everyone was okay, but it was, it was pretty bad. Both vehicles ended up on the grass. Um, so and the, the ambulance, and not the ambulance, the fire truck and police officer were at least there three hours. So all the cars were totaled and stuff. So 
Just prayers for them. Okay. If everybody could continue to keep Cassidy in your prayers. Um, she's right now, she's at Lancaster Behavioral Health Hospital. Um, doing well there, I, I think, but I proceed with caution. Um, and also just to keep her, her mom and her sister in prayers too. Uh, they're up north with Mindy's brother who's got poor health and I'm not sure about what's uh, what's ahead for the future as far as where they're going to be and everything else. So pray the Lord's will be done. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Oh, we got one. Okay. If you could pray for Isaac on Wednesday, he is going to Hershey to get his tonsils and adenoids removed. Um, and because of his sleep apnea, he will be staying, and we'll be one of us will be staying overnight with him. So um, just pray that all goes well and that we finally get a night of sleep after all this. So, yeah. Two praises. Uh, Emma is doing well again. They said she had the COVID in her GI tract. That's what was going on with her. But she's fine again. Tired, but fine. And also what I thought was nose cancer turned out to be an infection. So I am very (laughs) thankful for that. Yes, hallelujah. Yep. Yep. Um, from Zoom, Jim Rothline has a praise and a prayer request. Um, the praise is that he has enough material and is going to be putting out another book of poetry. <laughs> and the prayer is for discernment that he chooses the proper poetry to include in his book. So. Okay. Any any others? Okay. Oh, no? Okay. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for giving us the gift of this day, and thank you for the gift of life and of the noises of life. And uh, it's just good to hear the sound of a, of a living, vibrant church. Father, we thank you that you watch over us individually so, so well. We thank you for all the healing that's been taking place from different ones. We ask for your, your protection and your guidance and your healing over others who are about to go to surgery, others who are in the hospital at the moment, others who now have something wrong with them but don't know exactly what it is. And so, Father, we're just, we have so many people in so many different stages of, of medical help. And so we just pray that you'll continue to work through doctors and specialists to give us the right treatment. We ask for your, your healing touch so that perhaps doctors aren't even necessary. We thank you for infections instead of cancers, and maybe it was cancer, and, and you took it away. We just we thank you for how you're so involved with each one of us. We ask you to be with, with families who are dealing with issues. We thank you that you're watching over them and, and walking them through these, these situations. We ask you to be with the families who were involved in the car accidents, that were, the, the car accident that was mentioned, and Father, we're going to also specifically ask for 
for you to, to be with Cassidy and with that whole family, all the different things that are going on right now. Father, I pray that, that you will, that your will will be done through Cassidy, that she will continue to look for you, she will cling to you, and her family will continue to represent you and to, and to, to make your presence known to her. Father, we pray that any of the people who work specifically with her and deal with her are also following your guidance. Father, we thank you for the way you take care of us through the week. We thank you that you provide for us. And so, Father, this offering that we've taken, we give back to you. And we don't give it back as an obligation as much as, a, as worship. We thank you, and we want to give it back to you, Lord, and so we ask you to, to accept it and to bless it, and we ask you to use it in any way that you wish in order to expand your kingdom. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. I'll ask you to stand and join me in singing hymn number 88. second Sunday of Advent, and we're talking about Jesus' coming. And um, even though each of the Gospels is a little different 
in the way that they introduce us to Jesus, they all do have one thing in common. They all begin the story of Jesus by introducing us to John the Baptist. Every year we hear about John the Baptist in our Advent readings, and we hear about him preparing the way. Advent is about Jesus' birth. Advent means coming. Advent is Jesus is coming. We need to get ready. That was John the Baptist's message, that the Messiah, the Christ, is coming and you need to get ready. He was preparing the way for the Messiah's arrival. I've chosen to use Luke's account, and we find it in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. Before I start reading, we have to remember that Luke was a doctor, so Luke was all about details. He gives us a lot of different names of different people and regions and so forth. He gives us a lot of of detail that sometimes makes it a little hard to read because those names are hard to pronounce sometimes. But he gives us names of real people. These were people who really did serve in the offices that he lists here. And so for people that he's writing to, that adds credibility to his story about this John that he's talking about, John the Baptizer. And then, of course, for later readers like us, it also adds credibility to the Bible as a very dependable historical document. Even if someone doesn't want to believe the miracles that are in there or or other things about this, they can't deny the historical truth of the things that are in here, such as what Luke is writing this morning. So let me read verses 1 and 2 here, starting In chapter 3, in the 15th year, he's very specific, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, now Caesar isn't a name, it's a title, he was the Caesar, so you know there was Julius who was a Caesar, there was Augustus who was a Caesar, he's talking about Tiberius, so you could go back in the history books, find out when he started his reign and go 15 years later and you'll know exactly when this happened. So in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius the Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor, so he's going down through the different levels of of reign here, we have the Caesar, Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea, and then he starts to list tetrarchs, or basically in our term maybe the mayors. Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip was tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was another person. He was the tetrarch of Abilene. So he gives us all these different people, all these different government officials. But he also decides to tell us about the religious officials of the time. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. They were the high priests. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Zechariah was a priest. He just wasn't the high priest. He was one of the priests that took their two-week term um, at the temple, and you, th- you make jokes about how the pastor only works one day a week. These guys only work two weeks a, mo- a year, so. but no, they did a lot more than that, just, just like hopefully I do a little more than, than one, hour a, one hour a week. But he's going through all the different levels. He's giving you all these different details of all these different people. And by mentioning the, the high priest and then the priest Zechariah, and then he mentions that his son is John, Well, back in those days, they would have just expected, traditionally or culturally, the fact that John would would follow in his father's footsteps, and he would be a priest as well. They just expected that. 
But we're going to see that John didn't follow tradition. He decided to be a traveling preacher. In verse 3, it says, He went into all the country around the Jordan. So John was hanging out in the wilderness area, close to the Jordan Valley. Now, don't think desert when I say wilderness. This is high country. This is high hilly country with rocks and so forth. Not trees, not like mountains where you have the pretty trees and where you go camping and things like that. Think, think the, the old Wild West shows where the outlaws that would hang out in the rocks and hide behind, you know, and that, that kind of high hilly area that's really not good for, for much of anything. There's not a whole lot growing there, but there were people who were living out there. And so John's out there preaching to them. And his message must have been pretty effective because scholars say that John's preaching led to about 300,000 converts. Now that's impressive. He was able to do that without big stadiums or arenas. He didn't have a mega church. He wasn't using a microphone or any kind of amplifiers. He was just out there giving his message. <clears throat> and if you think about it, he must have been pretty effective because he wasn't called John the Preacher, right? He was called John the Baptist. That's getting the job done. People weren't just hearing him. They were being affected by him. He had to be bringing a lot of people to conversion for his reputation to be about baptizing instead of just preaching. So John was preaching a very effective message. Let's take a look at what that message was. The rest of verse 3 tells us he was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He was preaching the fact that you must repent and you should be baptized. It's a good idea to be baptized. And he's talking about repentance, bringing about the forgiveness of sins. I want, but I want to camp out on this verse a little bit because it's worded in such a way, preaching a baptism of repentance. Let's take a look, first of all, at what repentance is. Repentance at its most basic level is saying you're sorry, but not just saying, how many times somebody would grab you by the, mom would grab you by the ear and, you know, now, now tell them you're sorry. And oh, I'm sorry, you know, but you didn't really mean it, right? I got another little story. I got to share this with you, especially since Vicky's not here and I don't have to. I was, um, we were driving back home from, I believe it was Harper's Ferry one time in the van. We had the minivan going because we had the three little kids, you know, and we had all the car seats and Vicky and I were up front, and I think they had all fallen asleep. And I'm driving. It's one of these areas where two lanes come to one. You're supposed to merge, so you know there's going to be trouble. And um, I'm just driving along, and as we're merging, some white station wagon comes up beside me and wants to squeeze in. You know my nature. He didn't get in. Um, <laughs> but, but I would have left him in if he had been there as we were merging, right? He decided, he, anyhow... It's not justified, but anyhow, there, there I am. I'm confessing. Uh, he didn't get in, but he got in behind me, and then he tailed me. He followed me and followed me, and I was looking in my rearview mirror, and I could see him in there, and he just looked mad, <clears throat> and I wanted a drink anyway, so I stopped at a convenience store. I saw him pull in in my mirror. I saw that he pulled into the, into the parking lot, too, so I assumed. I, I pulled in. I looked at Vicky. I said, is there a white car beside us? And she says, yeah. I said, is there a man that looks mad? She says, he's standing right at the door. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. So I get out of the car. Boom. Not, do not do what I say, do, or don't do as I do, do as I say. Knowing he was there, 
I decided I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bump him. I opened the door and hit him, sorry, and get, get him riled up even more. But I get out of the car, and he starts yelling at me how, what a terrible driver I am and how unsafe I am and how could I act like that when I have children in the car, and he's just going nuts. And he says, I just want to hear you say you're sorry. I said, I don't really have a reason to say I'm sorry. You know, I'm just not going not gonna to bow to him. He keeps going. And then, of course, Vicky has to get into it. Mama Bear, she, she speaks up. And I said, Vicky, I got this. And he's yelling at her. I just want to hear him say you're sorry. I just want to hear him say you're sorry. And he looks at me again. I just want to hear you say you're sorry. I said, okay, you're sorry. And he says, that's all I wanted to hear. And he got back in the car and he took off. <laughs> so I never really apologized. But I went into the, into the convenience store, shaking like a leaf, because I'm not really a confrontationalist. But I got my drinks, got in the car. I said, Vicky, let's get out of here before he realizes what I said. And she didn't even realize it. I had to tell her. I had to explain it to her. But he was just so enraged. And he just wanted to hear, I want to hear you say you're sorry. Okay, you're sorry. So I was not repentant at all, was I? I mean, I was actually, I have to confess, I was actually stirring him up. All the things I was doing. And it was bad. I apologize. I repent now. Um, But that was not repentance. That's Just saying you're sorry is not what repentance is. It's actually wanting to never do it again, right? A change of heart. It's an, it's an attitude. The idea is that, that, you know, you've been walking away from God and, and, and maybe you're not totally turning your back on him completely. So many of us want to keep one eye on him and, and one eye over here in the world. You know, maybe we'll, we'll talk to him every now and then. You, Thank you for this food. Or uh, now I lay me down to sleep, you know. But, but in the meantime, we want to make sure we're enjoying the things of the world over here. Repentance is completely turning away from that and turning back to God, walking right back to him and not wanting to be walking away from him anymore. Another way to look at it is this morning we, we lit the candle of peace. John's message is a message of peace. The idea that we're, if we're walking away from God, we're constantly battling with God. We're constantly battling against him and his will. And so as repenters, we kind of raise the white flag. We surrender. No, I want to be ruled by you. I don't want to fight with you anymore. We truly desire peace with God. That's repentance. So what's baptism? Well, unfortunately, it's been a basis for division among Christians. We've had denominations who have split over baptism. We've had new denominations that were created because of their ideas of baptism. Um, you know, we, we argue about whether you should be baptized as a baby or as an adult. Should you be rebaptized? Should you be sprinkled or poured or dunked, immersed? And even when we can agree on a slogan, when we say baptism is an outward expression of an inward faith, we can't even agree on exactly what that means either. And it's unfortunate that so much division has been created over such a simple and yet beautiful action. There are some faiths and denominations that believe believe that there's some kind of saving action that goes on during baptism. But we believe that baptism is just a symbol. It's symbolic. Um, Baptism in and of itself does not do anything. Baptism doesn't save anyone. Otherwise, the thief on the cross never would have met Jesus in paradise. Our EC discipline defines baptism as the formal application of water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
doesn't say whether it has to be sprinkled, poured, or immersed. It just has to be administered. And it's a sign and seal to recognize that the person so consecrated stands in a holy covenant relation to God and his people. It's a symbolic gesture that says that I am in covenant with God or, or my child that I'm presenting for baptism has a covenant relationship with God. It has nothing to do with salvation at this point, just a covenant relationship with God. And it's a symbolic gesture that was modeled after a Jewish purification ritual. Remember that they, they practiced ceremonial washings all the time. They, they, if they needed, they touched something that was unclean, they needed to wash their hands. But they didn't use soap and water and really rub their hands. Their, their ritual was to basically pour some water, I think it was three times, just pour the water over their hand. Well, that didn't really clean anything, but, but ritually or ceremoniously it, it did. And there was only one ceremonial washing that was once and for all. That was an immersion of a Gentile or a non-Jew of any kind. And they would go through this immersion, and when they came back up, they were now a Jew. This was, this was the, the type, one type of ceremonial washing that they would do that was supposed to last forever. You go down a Gentile, you come back up a Jew. And the idea was symbolically that it purified the Gentile from all their pagan impurities. And so this would be the way that they would, that was the first step. You had to become a Jew, and then all the things that go along with being a Jew could, could be um, ad- administered to them. But think about that whole process for a minute, and then think about who John is preaching to. He's not preaching to Gentiles. He's out preaching to Jews up here in the wilderness. He's telling these Jews that they need to be baptized. So imagine what they're thinking. No way, John. I'm a Jew already. You're not dunking me because I don't need it, right? The Jews were offended that John was challenging their cultural tradition. Most people thought that if they were born into a Jewish family, and as long as they didn't blatantly reject God's laws, they were okay, right? It's kind of like today, a star pitcher or a star quarterback when spring training starts, and they'll talk about how it's his job to lose. You know, by default, he's got the job. As long as he doesn't make too many mistakes, he can make a few mistakes and it doesn't affect his position, but as long as he doesn't go way off the rails for any reason, then he's got the job. And that's the way the Jews felt like. We also have Christians that are like that today. Well, I was raised in a Christian family. I'm a good person. I, I've never murdered anybody, and I don't drink, smoke, or cuss, and, and I give to the Red Cross. So I know that I'm going to heaven. Right? They, they kind of think that by default, heaven is theirs to lose. They can make a few mistakes as long as they're a good person, and it won't affect their situation. But that's not how it works. John's telling them and telling us that each individual is accountable for his or her own salvation. The Jews have to come to God the same way the non-Jews do. You're not saved just because you were born a Jew. You're not saved just because you're a good person raised in a Christian family. Repent and be baptized. That's what verse 3 is telling us. 
So then Luke points out that John the Baptist is fulfilling prophecy from Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah in verses 4 through 6. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley should be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. The Lord's coming. Let's make it easy for him to find us. Fill in the valleys, lower the mountains, straighten the roads, right? Then we see that John was a typical preacher. His message was a good three-point sermon. His first point is a warning about the end times. And he starts with a very warm welcome in verse 7. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers! That's a great way to start. He's saying, you, you brood of, of snakes, you children of snakes. Hey, that ought to keep them around for a while. You children of snakes. And then here's the rest of his welcome. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? They know that fire will drive snakes out of their houses. They would have, ha- have snakes in their dwellings, and they know that fire gets rid, of, gets rid of the snakes. So he's saying the coming wrath is like an unquenchable fire that's going to drive out the snakes. Judgment is near. But judgment isn't going to be determined on the basis of religious identity. Verse 8 says, Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. John says, I don't care if you're from the line of Abraham. Being a Jew isn't going to save you. Being EC doesn't put you any closer to salvation than being Baptist or Methodist or UCC. Judgment isn't going to be determined on the basis of cultural identity. Now, this one might come as a shock to some people, but being American doesn't put you any closer to salvation than being French or German or Australian. Judgment won't be determined by your ethnic identity. I think it's safe to say that every religious tradition we share is European-based, white, Anglo-Saxon. Look at the pictures of Jesus. He's always a white man with long, straight hair. Was Jesus white? No. But Europeans painted the pictures. Our nativity scenes show baby Jesus in a wooden manger. They didn't have wooden mangers in Bethlehem. But Europeans set the context. Instead of reading scripture in a first century Jewish context, they read it in a 15th or 16th century European context. But being European doesn't put you any closer to salvation than Africans or Italians or Chinese or Japanese, you name it. And it doesn't matter if you grew up in a Christian home, a Christian church, or even a so-called Christian country. Judgment will be determined on the basis of repentance. And repentance, he says, shows itself by the way you conduct your life. So how do you show people that you're truly a Christian? Let's read on. Verse 9. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit 
will be cut down and thrown into the fire. He's going back and referencing in verse 8 how he said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And now he's saying that the axe is ready to cut any tree that doesn't produce good fruit. The axe is already at the root of the tree. Anybody who's used an axe, you know that you don't just pick it up and start swinging. For whatever reason, our, our habit is to take it and we touch the target, right? You always, you always touch where you're going to hit first. That's what he's saying. It's in Jesus' hand. He's touching the root. He's ready. He's ready to start swinging. The birth of Jesus signaled the end times. It's no longer something they were watching for. It's here now. He's saying trees that don't produce good fruit are going to be cut down and thrown in the fire. By now, he definitely has their attention. Then John delivers the second point of his message. What to do about the end times? And the crowd responds to John's sermon. Verse 10, what should we do then, the crowd asked. Well, at least they're interested, right? They didn't turn and and run away and leave him and not be concerned about his message. They want to know, what should we do then? But can you imagine how our current society might handle that message? You brood of vipers. The the axe is in Jesus' hand. And you need to be producing good fruit as Christians and as good people and so forth. It'd probably be hate speech and maybe be told to mind our own business. But the crowd says, what are we supposed to do? Verse 11 says, John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. So what's John's response? He says to share, take care of each other. Now, tax collectors, they were there in the crowd as well. They were the most despised members of society because they were Jews who were working for the Roman government. They were profiting from the oppression of their fellow countrymen. They were getting rich off their neighbors. And verses 12 and 13 tells us that even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? He says, don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. So his response this time is to be fair. Tax collectors were expected to receive a certain amount from each citizen. It was from the top, they would would tell a certain person who was in charge of a region, you need to collect this much from your region. And then that person would tell the person who's in charge of the city, now you need to collect this much per person. But they were also given the freedom to add a little bit on at their level. And then whatever was extra, they got to put in their pocket. So what he's saying is, don't do that. Only collect what is required at each level. And of course, tax collectors weren't the only ones who were abusing their position. There were soldiers who would abuse their power over vulnerable citizens. We see in verse 14, some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. So his response this time is no bullying. Right? So he's been asked, what should we do? And his answer has been share, be fair, and no bullying. Sounds like a sign that would be hanging up in an elementary school classroom, right? It's basic stuff, but, but maybe that's Luke's point. 
Being faithful to God's commands doesn't have to be dramatic. Notice that John doesn't say, stop collecting taxes, give up your relationship with Rome. He doesn't say, stop being a soldier, you need to be a pacifist. He's not saying any of that. He's telling them to, to, that they're called to serve where they are. He's saying, be a tax collector, but collect taxes with integrity. <clears throat> be a soldier, but do that with integrity. Every day we have opportunities to serve where we are in whatever role we're in. So be a teacher with integrity. Be a student with integrity. Be a landlord with integrity. Be a musician with integrity. Be a preacher with integrity. That's what we need to do during these end times to be ready when the Messiah comes again. Which leads us to the third point of his message. Just who is this Messiah? And they've been hearing him talk, and they're saying, hey, wait a minute, John, you, you seem to know a lot about this Messiah stuff. Maybe you're the Messiah. Verse 15 says, the people were waiting expectantly, and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. Now, that's really not as far-fetched as it sounds to us now, because remember, we get to look back on history here, and we get to see it knowing all the rest of the story. But let's think about it for a second from their perspective. They're hearing this for the first time. They've heard a little bit about John and how he got here. Did an angel tell your mother that you were going to be born? They know that an angel told Elizabeth all about John coming, and and Elizabeth was barren. She couldn't have children. And even if she could, she was too old to have children, right? John was a miracle baby. He was announced by an angel, and he came out already filled with the Holy Spirit. That sounds pretty qualified as the Messiah to me. But John tells them, no, it's not me. Verse 16 and 17 says, John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He says, I'm just baptizing you with water. The one you're looking for is a lot greater than I am. He baptizes too, but he baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And Old Testament prophets were telling people that in the end times, the righteous would be endowed with the Holy Spirit and the wicked would be burned with fire. So now the crowd's hearing another signal of the end times. John's message is signaling the end times judgment. And he gives another example of that judgment. Remember earlier, he gave the illustration of the Messiah holding the axe at the root, ready to chop. Now he's saying the widowing fork is in his hand. That was a fork that you used and you would shake it and the chaff would fall, the wheat and the chaff would be, would be separated. The wind would blow the, the chaff away and, and the wheat would fall to the floor. He's ready to separate the wheat and the chaff. The, the winnowing fork isn't just sitting there, it's in his hands. So, John was preaching a message of repentance. The end is near. Repent before it's too late. You don't want to be fruitless tree. You don't want to be chaff and get thrown into an unquenchable fire. John was called to prepare the way because the Messiah 
was coming. He led people to a better relationship with God by talking to them about baptism and repentance. Now it's your turn. You're called to prepare the way because the Messiah is coming again. John the Baptist is gone. Now it's up to you. You need to lead people to a better relationship with God by talking to them also about repentance and salvation and a total submission to Jesus Christ as ruler and Savior. And as we move deeper into this Advent season, you also need to remember to prepare the way for Jesus to your own heart. Think about what barriers might be keeping you from completely submitting to Jesus. Maybe you're a believer, but you have things that keep you from being totally committed. Are you completely facing him, or are you still walking with one foot in each camp? Are you just coasting toward Christmas, or are you preparing the way? Let's pray. Well, Father, thank you for your word and for the truth that we find in it. John was such an effective preacher, and his message is still so relevant and so powerful today. Turn from your wicked ways, repent, and be baptized. Father, I pray that you'll help us to fulfill our roles with integrity, and in the process, help us to lead non-believers that are around us. Help us to lead them to you. Help us to prepare the way for you to reach them. It's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. And I'll invite you to stand as we sing our final hymn, number 169.
so as you leave this place today, go with a desire to prepare the way for Jesus into hearts of non-believers around you. May God give you strength and peace as you point to Jesus, just as John the Baptist did, saying, Behold the Lamb of God, the sacrifice of God, who takes away my sin, your sin, the sin of the world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.